0: Well, this is a privilege to be with you guys, as I've mentioned previously um, in this transition. Hopefully the past two weeks with the interviews we did were helpful in that transition. Neither Michael nor I would like particularly enjoy that, want to <laughs> draw attention to ourselves and talk about ourselves, but I know we're learning that that's important. People are relational and they like to know who, who it is who's teaching to them. I think both Michael and I would prefer just to say, hey, doesn't matter who's speaking. It's the word of God. If it's not the word of God, don't listen to us. If it is the word of God, then listen. But we realize that's not, it's not quite that simple with how people work. So uh, hope that was helpful for you guys. Um, the only thing you might be expecting or anticipating is some kind of like vision. What's your plan for the class? But quite frankly, I don't have like any unique plan for the class, right? We just, we preach the word. We facilitate fellowship. And those are the means the Lord uses to sanctify his church. So uh, when we get into August, that's when I anticipate there'll probably be some more new people here. I may take a Sunday just to kind of remind us of what the purpose of this time here, the Sunday School Class Fellowship Class Hour is in the overall like plan of all the different meetings we have here on Sundays. Um, but for now, I think that was necessary. Um, that'll also probably be helpful as we come back up to small groups beginning again at the end of August, uh, just to rethink how all those pieces fit in and try to help you decide what to prioritize what not to in light of all the opportunities and yet everyone's busy right and have limited time so all right so uh, let me get this pulled up here there we are great so yeah i'm going to jump into first thessalonians um i have been studying first thessalonians first and second thessalonians for like the past two years probably kind of on and off here and there and um taught from portions of chapter one and chapter two at various, various venues. Um, I think I've preached two sermons from chapter one on a Sunday morning, Sunday morning, so some of you guys probably heard that, and then another one from chapter two on a Sunday morning, so some of you have heard that. We're just going to do those ones again, but give you guys more of the context as we work through it. The book has just been super encouraging to me, and I say encouraging, but really in many ways convicting, um, and I've shared some of that with you guys on Sunday mornings as I've talked about it, um, but just loved Studying it, to look forward to continuing to study and share it with you guys and just kind of work through it more systematically rather than just bits and pieces here and there. I'm going to come back around at the end of our time this morning just to talk through, like, what are some of the major teachings, some of the major themes in the book that you can look forward to ways that you're going to be encouraged or exhorted. Um, but before I do that, I'm going to first kind of focus on two goals, which is, number one, to orient us to the historical setting of the book. I'll come back and comment more on that. But number one, to orient us to the historical setting of the book. And the second goal is to jump into verse one. And I'm going to basically combine those two because verse one is going to tell us who's sending it, who it's going to. Um, And so it's going to cover a lot of that same ground. So I'll cover those two. But before we move into uh, kind of talking through verse one, let me just think through with you. Let's think together about why we would take some time to think about the historical setting of the book. Um, any thoughts? Why would we take time to, to do that? To think about when the church was planted, when Paul was writing this letter? It's okay, you guys can speak. <laughs> Sean, go ahead. It's necessary to understand what's going on when you read the book. Yeah, totally. I think that's well said. It's necessary to understand what's going on in the book. This book, I mean, a lot of the letters, they're circumstantial, right? So they're assuming that their readers are aware of certain issues. Uh, It's written to particular people in particular situations, and it's, yeah, it's assuming you know those things. And fortunately, we can kind of reconstruct a lot of that from just the combination of all Paul's letters plus the book of Acts, and so that's going to be helpful. This book in particular, particularly in the first three chapters, makes lots of references to the historical situation. And so I'll bring this info back in as we get there, but it'll be helpful on the front end to kind of see the the overall picture, right? So that's why, generally speaking, But I want to help us really think through why this is important to the goal of honoring Christ and the way we think and the way we feel and the way we live. It's not as though there's like two different ways to approach the Bible. Some people, they just like a more academic approach. Some people, they they just want to apply it and you kind of choose the way you go. And so to, to tease that out, let's just kind of start from the very beginning with what we have in the Bible. Right? We have God's revelation to us. God's spoken into his world. He's the creator. He created all that is. And now he's revealed himself and his purposes and his plan and his expectations in, in written text. He, he's revealed himself to us. And that's why the Bible's precious to us. And we need that revelation. This is an important piece to get. Apart from God speaking into his creation to instruct us we really are lost aren't we we could put varying degrees of confidence in our ability to get some knowledge of God and his purposes and ultimate meaning in life we could try to do that through a variety of means and we could talk about you know Romans 1 and to what extent can we know God through his creation or his expectations morally through our conscience and surely there's a measure of that true, that's there, that's true. There is a natural revelation, right? And yet what we can discern from that is really quite limited. And even what we can discern, we then skew because we, we, we just think about everything through, through flawed lenses, through sinful lenses, right? And so revelation is just so essential for us. And we, we need to keep that in mind. We cannot trust our own intuitions. Our intuitions don't naturally lead us to right thinking, to truth. We can't trust, at least at the highest level, our rationality, our ability to reason. God has given us reason for a purpose, and it has a role, I would say, within kind of a superstructure created by the revelation of God, meaning once you understand what God said about what's true, who he is, ultimate purposes in creation. Within that, there's a place for reason, right? Um, as a believer who, who holds to the authority of Scripture and seeks to know all that's there, if I'm tasked with uh, you know, building a, a bridge that's two miles across the mouth of this bay, like there's been a lot of context that's set for me from the Scriptures, but ultimately I'm not going to chapter and verse how to do this, right? I'm going to use reason. God's called us to exercise dominion and try to figure out how, how can I understand how his creation works so as to exercise dominion over it, right? There's a place for reason. There's a place for experience even to watch how things play out and learn from them. But those things all are kind of subordinate to God's revelation, which sets the overarching context for making sense of all that. Does that make sense? And I, I really want to emphasize that because think about what, we're, what we often hear, right? What we often hear, and sometimes aren't always attuned even to seeing it as being totally opposed to this, is we often hear that we need to be true to what? True to ourselves, right? And so there's this sense, and it really, I mean, it's almost like a, a rom- philosophy rooted in romanticism, um, Point to particular philosophers like Rousseau who would teach that but practically kind of at a popular level it's just kind of not rooted in philosophers it's just kind of pervasive right it's, it's part of the cultural ethos that you just kind of pick up everywhere you, you look it just kind of oozes out and the idea is that what comes out of you naturally is what's best like that's what you can trust in any sort of voice or authority from outside of you that would redirect you Is oppressive. Is that fair? I I don't I don't want to misrepresent that, but I think that is generally the perspective. And yet what scripture tells us is that what comes from within us naturally cannot be trusted, that God speaks without without, you know, outside of us, that comes to us from outside of us, makes demands and claims and speaks truth to us that's contrary to what we know within, and we're supposed to yield to that. Contrary to what comes from within. Can you guys see the the tension there? So I just draw that out because I think it's important to see that tension, to acknowledge that. That's what we're called to do. We're called to recognize, you know, I I desire this. You know, just using an an illustration, right? So with a, a female co-worker at work, my affections are growing for her. I desire to leave my wife and to go be with her. But God's word says something different, Right? So I must say no to those desires and replace them with truth. This is what God calls me to do. And not just at the external, this is what I'm going to do, but even at the level of what's wrong with my thinking that I would want to desire that, right? I'm believing lies when I I think that's better for me. Is that better for me? God says that's not better for me, right? So I've got to believe that. Whereas the culture would often tell us, you know, as I saw on the billboard yesterday, life is short, get a divorce, Right? Like, why would you the, the culture would tell us you you need to be true to yourself. And so why would you ever want to like be unhappy, not to give in to whatever it is you want? Alright, you guys seeing that point? So we need revelation from without. And it's going to make claims on us that are contrary to what we naturally desire. And we must develop the habit of recognizing there's often gonna be a tension there, and we need to yield. But we actually do what we actually think, what we actually feel to what God says, bringing into submission to that, not to what naturally comes within us. Now, that revelation from God, though, is not just the words themselves, as in the grammatical units. Hear me out on this, okay? It's not just the words themselves that we need. And that should be pretty obvious because Paul did not write the English words that are on the page in front of you, right? He wrote Greek words, but why is it that we, we think that the English words, we, we rightly think that the English words are, are a reasonable approximation? Because they convey the meaning, right? There's a shared meaning there. So where I'm going with this is the revelation isn't just the words themselves, it's the meaning contained by those words. And the significance of that is that if we have the words of God that he's revealed, but we don't know what they mean, do we have that revelation? We don't, right? Or, that's to say if we, if we have the words, but not we don't know what they mean, like we just have no idea. But what if we think we know, but we're, we're misinformed? We attribute a different meaning than God intended to them. Do we have the revelation of God? No, we don't. And this makes sense to us on the, the everyday plane. If you give me a message to convey to someone else, you're going to give me words that convey a meaning. And if I then misunderstand that, and I convey those very same words, but in a way that gives it a different meaning you're not going to feel as though I've actually conveyed your message, will you? (laughs) But, But the words, the words were the same, right? But no, the meaning was different. So that wasn't the message. So where I'm going with all this is just to point out that when it comes to understanding the revelation God's given us, we must make sure we get it right. Is that fair? We must make sure we correctly interpret it. And it's not, again, going back to where I started with this, it's not as though the application of God's word for life change is separated from determining that meaning. I mean, think about it, what What's the alternative? Well, I want to apply God's word to my life, but I want to bypass knowing what it means. Does that sound responsible? Especially when you when it's going to require changes to what you're doing, right? To start changing your life in light of God's word when you're not even sure that's what he meant, wouldn't it be responsible, right? So we can't separate these two. We can't begin to apply God's word without knowing what it means. On the flip side, woe unto us who who arrive at an understanding of what god means but then just walk away like if god and all of his authority has spoken there's some sort of response demanded right at the very least I, i'm just trying to be practical, right like your morning devotions and you read okay i think i know what's here like what do you do right now right well at the very least you're gonna at least offer god a prayer right like lord you've spoken i hear what you mean i want to live according to this help me in coming days to put this into practice. Help me to see what this looks like in my life. Right There's at least an acknowledgement. God's spoken. I need to submit myself to that. I need to yield myself to it. So it goes both ways. We don't really have the option of studying the Bible academically to get its meaning and then never applying it. Nor do we have the option of applying without really ever trying to understand what it actually means. Is that piece clear? Good. So that's why we need to pull both of these together. Let us not fall into that trap of kind of creating this distinction that Either we study it kind of studiously or we just, we're just we just practical people who want to apply the Bible, right? Um, we, both, we all want to be both. We all need to be both. And granted, we're going to be oriented and some of us are going to be more inclined towards the academic side. Some people are going to struggle with that a bit more. Um, but we both need to press. We all need to press into both sides of that. It's necessary. All right, so to tie up that little aside... That's why historical context is important, because we don't want to just jump in and start trying to apply the letter. We don't know what really is going on. We've got to first understand what's going on there. So first goal this morning to explain the historical context, and I already mentioned the second goal is to cover the first verse. And I can say I'm going to do that simultaneously as we work through verse 1. So go ahead and look in your Bibles to 1 Thess chapter 1. And while you're turning there, I'm going to hand out a little handout here. And I'm going to have most of the same content up on the screen as well, but I thought it might be helpful to have it in front of you. All right, just going to read the verse, very brief, verse one. Paul and Silvanus and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. So I'm going to structure this as three orienting elements to the introduction. Three orienting elements to the introduction. And the first thing we're going to come to is just basically the senders. Who are the senders? I've labeled it our models, encouragers, and instructors. And here I'm referring to the authors of the letter, Paul, Savanis, and Timothy. And I'm calling them Models, encouragers, and instructors, because that pretty helpfully captures a lot of what they're going to do through this letter. As they talk about themselves, they're going to serve as models for us, and not just kind of accidentally. I think at certain points, especially chapter 2, they're intentionally kind of opening up their lives biographically, autobiographically, to serve as models for the Thessalonians, and down through the ages for us as well. Um, So they're models, they're encouragers. They are very intentional, particularly, again, in the first three chapters, to be really seeking to encourage the Thessalonians, and then down through the ages, us as well. They're going to seek to encourage us as well with their words. Clearly encouraging the readers is one of their goals. And then, especially in chapters 4 and 5, they're instructors. They're trying to anticipate where instructions needed. They're not just trying to anticipate based upon reports about where instructions needed and give that instruction. So the senders would be these three authors, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, here functioning as our models, our encouragers, and our instructors. Notice that three authors are mentioned. Now, that's not totally unique. Paul, in a number of his letters, mentions multiple authors in terms of there being, I think, often just two. It um, might be Galatians that he mentions and all the saints who are here with me. Um, so it's kind of an amorphous group. But not only is it that three is a bit interesting, but In most of his letters, after saying, you know, here's the list of people who are writing, you know, Paul and Timothy, he goes on to write the rest of the letter in the first person, meaning I. First person singular, I should say. I. So it's like, what happened to Timothy in writing all this? Well, it seems like Timothy's present, but Paul's not really attributing all what he's saying to Timothy. It's more so him. But in this letter, he continues almost consistently throughout the whole letter in the first person plural, we. So it's almost as though they're like more so than in other letters, all three, the authors of this letter. There are only a few times that Paul will revert to the first person singular, I, but for the most part, it's the we. So a little bit of historical overview here. Let's switch to kind of a chronological order while I just kind of lay out Paul's missions and how this worked out in terms of the planting of the church um, and even how Silas and Timothy, Silvanus and Timothy, fit into this. Paul's mission, kind of where they met up with him, how they got to this point. So you should have in front of you there a handout where you can see some key dates. And I've actually got it up here. So just some key dates to think about in relation to this to kind of give you some orientation. You can see Paul's conversion, 34. I would date Christ's crucifixion, resurrection, ascension to 33 AD. AD 33. So you can see Paul was converted the year after. And then you can see he goes... uh, whether it's 14 or 17 years is a, is a point of interpretation, but in this case, 14 years until his first missionary journey, about 47 to 48. And then he, as soon as he gets back from that, he writes the letter of Galatians, then goes to the Jerusalem Council, and then you have Paul's second missionary journey. This is in italics because this is where we're going to find most of the content. He plants the church on the second missionary journey. He writes the letter during the second missionary journey. That's also why the writing of 1 Thessalonians is there. And then the writing of Second Thessalonians was probably still on that second missionary journey, just a little bit later. Um, and then a few years after that, Paul's third missionary journey. So just some overall orientation for you guys. I, some of you, this is probably familiar. You have some context for this. For some of you, even the ideas of missionary journeys is a little is new, and particularly that there were three is new. So that's fine. Uh, but here's a little bit of orientation. Um, so let me just show you a little map here. Okay, so first missionary journey. Hopefully, I'm zoomed out here. I know it's really small, but it gives you some orientation. You've got kind of the Middle East here. Here would be Syria, modern-day Syria, modern-day Iraq, modern-day Israel, Egypt. Here's the Nile Delta. Um, here would be modern-day Turkey and modern-day Greece. Okay, it's so helpful. All around the Mediterranean, a little bit of orientation. Now let's zoom in. And this is actually going to show us his first missionary journey. So remember, the first missionary journey is just background at this point. But Paul is in, uh, Paul, Barnabas, and John Mark are all in Antioch. Now notice there's an Antioch here and an Antioch here. So we should distinguish them as Syrian Antioch, meaning Antioch and Syria, and then Pisidian Antioch. You can't see it, but this region here is Pisidia. So, just based upon the regions, there's two for Antiochs, and that's difficult to keep in mind as you're reading, because especially the book of Acts doesn't usually distinguish them. It just mentions Antioch or Antioch and assumes from the context you know which one it is. It might be like, you know, someone, an American writing about, someone who grew up in, in Georgia writing about Athens, right? Like, no one's really confused about whether they mean the Athens in Greece or Athens-Georgia, right? They just, they assume you know because of the context. Okay, so... Paul, Barnabas, and John Mark all leave Antioch over there on the right. Let me zoom in a little bit more for you here. And this should play to show you how this goes. So they first go down to the island of Cyprus. I'll pause that there. They first come down to the coast here, Seleucia, get on a ship, go to Cyprus. And they basically land here at Salamis on the east coast. And they make their way, going into synagogues, as was their custom. Um, preaching the gospel there to the Jews that basically Jesus, or the Messiah you've been anticipating, has come in Jesus of Nazareth, fulfilling these Old Testament prophecies. And so turn to him, and there's also been a whole covenantal shift that's happened accordingly. He's brought this new covenant, and so that has changes with regard to what you do with Moses. So he's preaching that. They travel all the way across here, get basically to the west side. This is a straight line. We don't really know exactly where they went. They might have gone all around, right? But at the very least, they started here, ended up at Paphos, and then they left him. from there. So that's how the first missionary journey began. That portion's not too relevant for what's going to come up in the letter. Then, when they arrive here, uh, Acts as they first go to Perga, but we know that usually the ships would first land in Italy and the port there and then go into Perga. And then this black line is showing John Mark. As remember, John Mark abandons them early on. And this is going to lead to a little bit of a dispute between Paul and Barnabas later. But that black mark is showing... John Mark going back to Antioch or to Jerusalem. I don't remember which one he went to. So they first go to Perga. And then as we'll see here, um, there's going to be some traveling throughout this portion of Asia Minor. um, Mostly all here through the Galatian region. Let me overlay here some regions. So you can see the region. So you can see why this is all considered kind of part of... um, Galatia, Derby kind of on this map lays outside of it. On many maps, Derby is actually treated as a part of the Galician region. Um, so essentially, it involves Perga, Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, Derby, and then they go back through the same way. So that's a first missionary journey. Not a massive area being covered. Um, but that's where they went during the first missionary journey. And what really is significant about this first missionary journey for our purposes is that Timothy. Was a resident of Lystra, right here, and he was most likely saved as a result of Paul's first missionary journey and the preaching there. Um, Paul sometimes calls Timothy a child in the faith. And yet in other places he talks about like the scriptures which you've known from childhood being taught to you by your mother and grandmother, right? So how do you work those out? Was he saved much earlier? Was he saved under Paul's ministry? I take it that Paul sees the continuity between, you know, kind of a, a believing, faithful Old Testament Jew. He was looking forward to the Messiah, hearing the, the Old Testament scriptures, um, and then he basically hears about Jesus of Nazareth, he believes that. So there's a sense in which he kind of makes that covenantal switch, becoming a, a new covenant believer under Paul's ministry, but he had already been in faith reading the Old Testament and been taught that previously. That's kind of how I pull those pieces together. But he was converted to Jesus of Nazareth in that sense, um, through Paul's ministry during that first missionary journey here in the Galatian region. And then I think from there it just basically finishes up, sending him back to Antioch, down to Perga, Italia, and then they go back to Antioch. All right, so that's the first missionary journey. And then when he gets back to Antioch, he writes the letter of Galatians to the churches in Galatia. You can see why. That's pretty much where he's been, right? And there's a concern there, a concern largely about the role of the law of Moses and circumcision and food laws and those types of things that he's trying to address. But this debate only continues to grow hotter and hotter such that eventually you have coming up from Judea to Antioch here some teachers who are saying essentially that no one can be a follower of Christ, can be justified, can be saved if they aren't circumcised. And so increasingly as you have more and more Gentiles being saved, this becomes more and more of a concern, right? And they're saying, hey, listen, the Old Testament's pretty clear. Circumcision is necessary to be part of the covenant people. Is that really necessary? And so Paul and Barnabas and the other teachers and elders in Antioch talk with these teachers for some time, but they're utterly unpersuaded, and they kind of conclude, okay, let's go back to Jerusalem and let's call the apostles together there and let's have the elders at the church in Jerusalem kind of convene a council, which becomes known as the Jerusalem Council. And that's recorded in Acts 15, if you want to look that up. Acts 15 and basically just explains that no... uh, the law of Moses and particularly circumcision are not required of new covenant believers and we can't continue to impose that on them. So during that time, a letter's written, uh, kind of coming out of this, this is the verdict, the decision of the council, and then Paul and Barnabas, uh, let's see, who else am I missing? Paul, Barnabas, Judas and Silas, so two other people, Judas and Silas, are given this letter and told to return to Antioch to render the verdict, right? So it's not just Paul and Barnabas who were the ones who originally already had a strong opinion. It's now two others who were likely elders at the church in Jerusalem there. Um, Both of them were said to be leading men among the church in Jerusalem, this Judas and this Silas. So they then... Uh, go back to Antioch, deliver the decision. After some time in Antioch, we're still at the Syrian Antioch here, after some time there, Paul and Barnabas decide they need to return to the places where they'd planted churches initially here, and they need to strengthen those churches, check on how they're doing. And so they decide they're going to they're gonna go back. However, they disagree over whether to take John Mark. You guys probably remember this from the book of Acts. And so Barnabas and John Mark... Barnabas decides to take John Mark, Paul doesn't. So they leave and they go to Cyprus. That's Barnabas and John Mark. And I should have a second one here for, yeah. So this is the second missionary journey. So you can see it starts off with their Barnabas and John Mark in the blue, them going to Cyprus. And then you can see in the white, this would be Paul and Silas. So Paul and Silas go by land through Asia Minor. I know the white's kind of hard to see, but you can see they're going back through a lot of the same cities they were at previously, right? You guys see that? So they're strengthening those churches as they go. And then I'm going to take us a little bit further up to the west coast of Asia Minor, and then I'll stop, and let's talk about Silas a bit. So we've already heard that Silas was one of these leading men at the church in Jerusalem, likely one of the elders there, and he's the one who goes with Paul and Barnabas back to Antioch to deliver the verdict from the Jerusalem Council. But interestingly, this Silas, which is what Acts calls him, is the very same person who's Silvanus as the author here. Now um, That's widely recognized as the same person. Throughout the uh, Greco-Roman world, those two terms were interchangeable. Silas was the term more often used among Jews, and Silvanus was the term more often used among Gentiles. So very same person, but now you've got some background for one of the authors, right? He was likely an elder at the Jerusalem, the church in Jerusalem, was one of the ones who went with Paul to deliver this verdict, and he's the one who's traveling with him. And then, I skipped over this, but obviously as they're coming back here through Lystra, they find this Timothy, who in the meantime has become one of the significant and trusted leaders at the churches there. Now particularly in Lystra, but he's recognized, it says, even among other churches. He's kind of known there as being a faithful leader in the churches. So While Paul's there, he decides Timothy would be very valuable to the second missionary journey, so he takes Timothy along. So now we've got all three of them, right? So I said initially it was just Paul and Silas or Silvanus here, but at this point now it's the trio of them heading this way. So they're heading on across to the west. They get to the west coast of Asia Minor. They're Troas to the port city. Then they, um, and you can read about all this in Acts. Then they get on a ship, and they head across the Aegean Sea there, To Neapolis and then up to Philippi. Let me zoom in here. And so, Philippi, let's stop there for one moment. So, Philippi is the place they stop immediately before they get to Thessalonica. And you guys will remember some of this. It's one of the things that's memorable from their stay over in Philippi is that's where they're put in prison and there's the earthquake and they get out and then the, the jailer converts to Christ. Um, so that's one of the interesting things there. But while they're there, they're planting a church, but they were arrested. Uh, basically, they're, they're starting out in synagogues, preaching there. And some of the Jews in those synagogues say, yeah, that seems to match the Old Testament scriptures, what you're proclaiming. So we, we believe Those who don't get really concerned about that, those who don't believe. They get really concerned and angry, and basically in Philippi, they end up um, basically talking to the the city leaders and getting them arrested and beaten with rods and then thrown into prison. And again, that's that night where the earthquake happens, and they eventually end up leaving there. And as we'll see a little bit later in 1 Thessalonians, they basically leave battered and bruised from their beatings with rods, And they continue on from there to Thessalonica. And in chapter two, we'll see this where he basically refers to, you can know of the integrity of our ministry, because and you can know that we weren't just these circuit preachers who are coming to try to make some money off of you because we came like battered and bruised, having just preached the gospel in Philippi, and the same thing happened to us again in Thessalonica. So like this is obviously something we're willing to we're willing to take some hits for, not something we're just trying to, you know, prosper ourselves off this message. So then when they get to uh, Thessalonica, let me actually just read this to you. So this is from First Thess 2. Paul says, for you yourselves know, brothers and sisters, our coming to you, that it was not in vain or it was not lacking in integrity, but having suffered beforehand and been mistreated in Philippi. You guys see that? suffered beforehand and been mistreated in Philippi, just as you know, we were bold in our God to speak to you the gospel of God in much affliction. That's what he's referring to there, that previous time when they were just in Philippi, immediately before that. Next, they stop in Thessalonica, and they plant a church there. And so let's take a look at Acts 17 here. So go and flip in your Bibles to Acts 17. I think as soon as I get past this section, we'll take a break for this week. Acts 17, beginning in verse 1. Now when they had traveled through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And according to Paul's custom, he went to them, and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, and saying, this Jesus whom I am proclaiming to you is the Christ. That is, is the Messiah, right? The anticipated Messiah from the Old Testament. Verse 4, and some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, along with a large number of the God-fearing Greeks and a number of the leading women. But the Jews, becoming becoming jealous and taking along some wicked men from the marketplace, formed a mob and set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason, uh, attacking the house of Jason, they were seeking to bring them out to the people. So Jason's the one who's um, housing Paul and Silvanus and Timothy, showing them hospitality. Verse 6, When they did not find them, they began dragging Jason and some brethren before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have, set, who have upset the world have come here also, and Jason has welcomed them, and they all act contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus they stirred up the crowd and the city authorities who heard these things. And when they received a pledge from Jason and the others, they released them. The brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. I'll keep going through verse 15 here. Now these were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica, for they received the word with great eagerness, that's those in Berea, examining the scriptures daily to see whether the things were so. Therefore, many of them believed along with a number of the prominent Greek women and men. But when the Jews of Thessalonica found out that the word of God had been proclaimed by Paul in Berea also, they came there as well, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then immediately the brethren sent Paul out to go as far as the sea, and Silas and Timothy remained there. Now those who escorted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible. So, take this... Map you're a little bit further along. So we came up to Thessalonica where they plant the church. They're there for at least three Sabbaths. They go on to Berea, and then Paul continues on down to Athens, and that is where Timothy and Silas meet up with him. So just to summarize what we read there, they spend three Sabbaths in the synagogue in Thessalonica preaching that Jesus is the Messiah. Many are converted, but the Jews who don't uh, don't convert, they don't like this. So they basically find round up some thugs, start a riot and go to the home of the people who were showing hospitality to Paul and his companions. And then that night, they end up escaping to Berea, all three of them, the next city along the way. And then, which says they escaped that night, doesn't necessarily mean they made it to Berea. I think this thing can tell us. Yeah, so we can see it's about 36 miles from Thessalonica to Berea if you go straight. So that's more than a night's journey. Um, So they probably left in the night and then continue to travel the next day. But they get to Berea. As you can tell, they do the similar sort of thing. This is their practice. They go into a synagogue. They proclaim Jesus as the Messiah. Um, many more converts. Sounds like even greater reception in Berea than they had in Thessalonica. But then the Jews from Thessalonica hear, oh, they're doing the same thing in Berea. So they go there to kind of stir up the crowds there to try to keep them from doing this. So they have to end up fleeing again. Silas and Timothy stay behind. Paul goes on to Athens. And that's where that portion of the story leaves us. see where we can stop here. I'll stop there. We'll pick up. I don't want to keep you guys too long. It's 1016. Um, so let me pray for us. Lord, we do thank you for your word and even just for the opportunity to both think about what we have in your word as your revelation to us. We thank you for that because we do believe that we, we would be lost and confused as your creatures without instruction from you. So we thank you for that. Uh, We also know, Lord, that we live in a world that has always, uh, not not uniquely in our own time, but that has always, in its rebellion, sought to give other explanations for life and for purpose and how to determine what's right and wrong. Um, And so I pray that you would help us to be increasingly discerning about those things and just continue to come back to your word, wanting to know what you've revealed and yielding all of ourselves to that. I also thank you for this letter and for the privilege that we have of being able to hear this portion of your revelation, think about it together as brothers and sisters in Christ and how we will be applying it even after we understand it and for just this time to be able to set up the context. I pray that as we pack up our things here and move over to the ministry center, uh, we we just pray for clarity for Pastor Farrell as he preaches. We pray that we'd be those who would um, grow more and more biblical in our response to one another, particularly when we rub one another the wrong way or even outright sin against one another, learning how to forgive one another and be patient and gracious with one another. And we pray we'd be growing in those things, particularly as we hear your word. And Pastor Farrell helps us think about how to apply that. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.